Well, good morning once again, everybody. Great to be uh, at Hillcrest this morning. And to those of you not only here at the Nine Mile, a special welcome to those of you that are worshiping and gathering this morning over at our Spanish Trail campus. Hey to all the Spanish trailers this morning. And to those of you that are uh, tuning in online at hillcrestchurch.com or on our Facebook Live uh, location, wherever you may be this morning, we're happy to welcome you into a time of worship this morning. Our Bibles are open to the letter to the Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians, uh, chapter number one again this morning. If you need a pew Bible here in the house today, it's on page 924, but whatever your Bible medium, be sure and find it. We'll even have some scriptures up on the screens today for those uh, who want to tune in that way as well. We've started a series in this very deep and important letter, brief though it is, just a couple of weeks ago. This is our third message into our longer study of Colossians. We'll be in it for just a little bit. And today I want to visit with you, if I can, for a few minutes on the subject of prayer. How many of you would agree with me that of all the spiritual disciplines you find that prayer presents a special challenge to you in terms of being what you and I would call an effective prayer. You all find it difficult sometimes to persist and to persevere in prayer? I do. Uh, I came to that conclusion, as I have many times across the, the spectrum of my adult life and ministry, that I'm pretty anemic when it comes to my prayer life. I've never had an issue being in God's Word, never have had an issue connecting with God's people, never had an issue in any of those kinds of spiritual disciplines. But prayer always presents special challenges to most of the people of God, and our church is not different from most. I think that we can do a better job praying for our ministry, for our community, and we can surely do a better job praying for one another. As you read, of course, the New Testament, there's no way to miss that the Apostle Paul was a praying man. Uh, not only does he often speak to the importance of prayer in a believer's life, it's not uncommon for the Apostle Paul to actually incorporate actual prayers within the, uh, the body of many of the letters that he writes and that are recorded in our Bibles. And that's what he does here in his introduction <clears throat> to the Colossians. He prays for the church at Colossae. And with that in mind, I want us to talk for a few minutes this morning about the subject, how to pray for your church, because I think that we can all agree that we need to be better and we need to do better when it comes to praying for one another. Let's look at what Paul has to say here in Colossians 1, beginning in Verse 9. Y'all ready to read? Say amen. And so from the day we heard, from the day we heard about what? From the day we heard about how you've grown in the gospel and the gospel is bearing fruit and how you're increasing in faith and in love and in hope, all those things that we talked about served as a source of Paul's rejoicing last week about his understanding of what was happening among the people in Colossae. From the day we heard about that, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and so to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit and 
every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, the first thing that you should notice about that prayer, particularly remembering the things that we discussed in our time together last Sunday, is that unlike so much of our praying, which is driven by bad news, Paul's praying wasn't driven by bad news, it was driven by good news. Haven't you found that most of your praying is driven by bad news? Bad news about finances, bad news about the job, bad news about health, bad news about your kids. You get bad news, and it's usually the bad news that drives you to your knees. Well, Paul's not motivated to pray for this church by any bad news. He hadn't gotten any bad news about them. He's <clears throat> driven to pray because of the good news that he'd gotten about their growth and their fruitfulness. And as he receives that news, he rejoices. And as a part of his rejoicing, he begins to utter this incredibly deep prayer to God on their behalf. The second thing you should notice about it is it's collective prayer. Paul's not so much praying for individuals as he is for the church at Colossae. And how important it is for us to learn to pray not only for ourselves and not only for our families, but to learn to pray for our church. And as we walk through this prayer this morning, it's going to be telling as to the kinds of things that Paul actually prays for. As I read and meditated on this prayer for most of this week, I was again astounded that the kinds of things that Paul prayed for when he prayed for this church are rarely the kinds of things that I pray for when I pray for my wife or when I pray for my family, my kids, or even for my church. He prays for some really deep stuff here. And as we go through it this morning, what I'd like to do is isolate four essentials, and then we're going to conclude by putting some of these into practice and just praying for one another as a way to end our service this morning. These are four things that mark mature prayer for your church family. First of all, Paul would say if he were here today, you need to pray for a knowledge of God's will. Pray for spiritual knowledge and understanding in terms of what the larger will of God is, for you as the people of God. And again, unlike much of our praying, notice what Paul doesn't pray for as we read again through this passage that I read just a moment ago. He doesn't pray for the church at Colossae. Did you notice it? That they be happy all the time. He doesn't pray that they be healthy all the time. He doesn't pray that they be protected all the time. Now, don't you find that those are three things that you tend to pray for, for the people that you love as much as, if not more than anything else? Happiness, healthiness, protection from pain, freedom from pain. Paul doesn't pray for any of that stuff. He doesn't pray that they be kept from danger because he knows that living in a fallen world and preaching the message of the gospel, a gospel that is centered in the holiness of God, is going to be so radical that danger cannot be helped this side of heaven. No, instead what he prays for is this deep level of spiritual knowledge and insight 
as it relates to God's larger will and God's larger purpose for their lives, for their families, and particularly for their church. Paul prays for them in verse 9, asking that you may be filled with the what? With the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, let me just say this morning that when Paul uses the phrase God's will uh, here, he is, I think, using it in the broader rather than in the narrower sense. In other words, he's not praying narrowly for them in any particular way as in terms of how we typically phrase God's will. He's not praying for knowledge and insight about whether they should build a gym to better reach their community. He's not praying for knowledge and wis- uh, wisdom as to whether or not they should put carpet on the floor or hardwood on the floor. Everybody with me? He's not praying for a discernment of God's will about whether or not they ought to start a second campus on the western end of the trade route. Now, all of those things are important, and those are things that we as a church should pray about and things that we should pray for. But when Paul prays that they might be filled with the knowledge of God's will, he's speaking about their knowledge and understanding of the gospel. The, the, the total plan of God. He's, he's praying that they would grow in maturity in terms of their understanding of who God is and what God has done and what God is ultimately about in this plan of starting churches and preaching the gospel and seeing people saved and baptized and brought into the life of the church in order to perpetuate that and multiply that work so that as many people possible short of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ might be saved and might go to heaven. He, he's wanting them to move beyond the milk stage of Christianity and to go on to maturity, knowing the full plan as to what God has done for them in Christ, understanding the Word, understanding how God wants to use them and God wants to use others to change the world with the message of the Gospels. That makes sense? The general purpose and the general will of God. Some people don't have a very deep understanding of that. They think their life is just about coming to church and singing a few songs and backslapping and talking about what happened yesterday on the gridiron and for college football teams or whatever. As long as we get together and pray a little bit and talk about God, then we fulfill the will of God. No, we have not. It's much deeper and broader and wider and higher than that. And the reason that this is such a critical way to pray, both then as now, is because there are all these competing ideas about God and about life and about eternity. They existed at the time that Paul writes this letter. And one thing Paul did not want to have happen is he didn't want the gospel to become corrupted by false teaching. He didn't want it to be watered down because of all these different competing ideas about who God was and what God was like and how you really ought to worship God and what God really wants to do in the life of people. He knew, that, uh, he, he knew rather that virtually uh, all of these Colossian believers were pretty much still babies. They were baby believers, and they hadn't grown up yet. And the thing about babies is babies can be pretty gullible, right? Sometimes you can give a little baby crawling on the ground, a Cheerio, and sometimes you can give that baby a roach. And whether it's a Cheerio or a roach, it's going to go right to the mouth because they don't have a very strong sense of discernment. Isn't that right? It's part of the reason why I want to keep the floors clean at Hillcrest. Somebody say amen. Because everything just goes right to the mouth. 
Baby Christians can be a lot like that as well. Growing Christians can be like that. There's a degree of gullibility in terms of things that are taught. And if it tickles our ears, sometimes we'll just buy into it. Well, Paul doesn't want that to happen to the Colossians. In fact, part of the reason, as we will see, that he writes this letter is because he knows some of that is already happening. And he needs to address it, and address it he will later on. But he doesn't want them to buy into corrupted spiritual teaching or to begin to drift theologically. You remember what Jesus told Peter? Peter, who strutted around with that chest out and thought he knew everything and had everything under control. And Jesus looked at him. Do you all remember this? And he said, Simon, let me tell you something. Satan has wanted to grab you by the throat and sift you like a sack of wheat. But I have prayed for you. And he wasn't praying for a lot of the stuff that we typically pray for, for our children. He was praying for the deep things of God in much the same way that Paul was praying for the Colossian believers. He wants them to increase in their knowledge of the truth, a full and complete understanding of God's plan and will. Everybody with me? Say amen. So he's praised for knowledge. That's the first thing. But not only should we pray for a full and comprehensive knowledge of God's will, second, we ought to pray for growth in life and ministry. I started to use the word wisdom in life and ministry, and you can write that above it if you want to, because that's just as applicable, because Paul not only prays for knowledge, he also prays for wisdom in terms of what they did with that knowledge, and knowledge and wisdom are close cousins, but they're not the same thing. Growth in spiritual knowledge and understanding of the gospel is important, but not as an end in and of itself. I know a lot of people know plenty of Bible information, but they don't do a thing with it. It's all just contained from the neck up. It never infects their fingers. It never infects their hands. It never affects their feet or their legs. There's no momentum that's gained from it in terms of their life. They don't do anything with it and really doesn't seem to make much of a sense of difference in their life. And for that reason, Paul not only prays for them to increase in knowledge, but for them to increase in wisdom as well. Notice again verse 9. He prays that the Colossians might be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual what? Wisdom and understanding. And then watch the next phrase. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work. Do you see how the knowledge of the gospel is supposed to move from head to heart to extremities so that it affects not only our cognitive understanding, but so that it affects the way that we actually use Paul's phrase, walk in the Lord. That term walk is a Hebraism that refers to a manner of life. The way we walk is really the way we live. And some modern translations translate it that way. Be very careful how you walk. Some will say be very careful how you live. Be very careful as to the course or to the direction of your life. And Paul is very quick to do that. He usually in his letters will emphasize this vital connection between what you know about Christ on the one hand and how you live for Christ on the other. For example, he'll tell the Philippian churches in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27, he says, only let your manner of life, 
There that is, your walk, in other words. Let the manner of life, your walk, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Well, to do that requires an abundance, not only of spiritual knowledge, but of spiritual wisdom. And the beautiful thing about wisdom is God makes wisdom available in abundance to any of His children who simply have the sense enough to ask Him for it. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him what? Let him ask God who gives generously and without finding fault, and it will be given to him. And wisdom, of course, is this simple ability to understand truth. It's the ability to understand truth and to make good decisions based on what you know. If I prayed for one thing in my adolescent children as they went through time of adolescence into adulthood, and even to this very day, is that God would grant them the wisdom to make good decisions. I prayed that over and over and over again. I wasn't worried about their knowledge level. I was more worried about their ability to make good decisions in the heat of the day, particularly when they had to make decisions quickly in the absence of full and complete information. And this is why wisdom is so important, why the Bible makes uh, much to do about it. Because you read Proverbs, it's what Proverbs is all about. Get wisdom, get knowledge. It's all about growing in wisdom, how to navigate the cultural terrain spiritually. Because remember, when you get saved, you might be living in this zip code, Pensacola, Florida, 32514. But when you get saved, spiritually, you're relocated, as we'll see in a minute, to a different zip code. And now your life just becomes a war zone. And if you live for Jesus, it's going to be dangerous. And so it's very important to walk wisely. The Bible says that. Be very careful how you live, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, for the days are what? Evil. And this is what Paul is saying when he prays this prayer. He's praying for wisdom, this ability to see life and to respond to life and to see people and respond to people from God's point of view, from the Bible's point of view. So the Colossians needed the knowledge of God. Yes, sir, they did. They needed the gospel. They needed to understand the gospel and its full impact and what God was doing until such time as Christ comes again. But they also needed wisdom to live it to live it in a way that continued to produce the fruit that he had heard about that was happening in their life, especially as they faced inevitable challenges from their opponents and inevitable challenges from a broken world that they lived in day by day by day. Now, here at Hillcrest, of course, we provide an abundance of opportunities for people to grow in the knowledge of God. We offer one course taught by one fine man or woman of God, one right after another after another. We should do those things, and we'll continue to do them until Jesus comes again. But the larger question is to all of us as a people is what are we doing with all that knowledge? I teach the Bible on Wednesday night, and all I got to do is throw out a question, and I get this cacophony of responses back, and 99.99% of them are right. And sometimes I wonder, what in the world am I doing in here? Y'all already got it all figured out, man. I got the Marines for Jesus in here. The larger question is, what are we doing with all this biblical insight? What are we doing with all this biblical knowledge? I mean, 
What's the point of acquiring biblical knowledge if you're not going to use it to help push back the darkness? Are we, are we learning just for learning's sake? Do we want to win when we play our children in a game of Bible trivia? Is that really what it's all about? Or are we walking in a way, as Paul says, that's worthy? Walking worthily of our Savior and King. Paul will talk to the Philippians about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work the knowledge in, but then work it out in terms of the way that you serve your king and serve your community and serve one another in the body of Christ. These are the very things that Paul prayed for, and we do well to pray for these very same things for ourselves, for our families, for our spouses, our children, our friends. We do well to pray this way for our church. But sometimes you can be increasing in knowledge and walking in wisdom, worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And I don't know about you, but have you ever found that you can be doing those things and then things not always work out according to plan? Has anybody else ever experienced that? Some crazy thing happens. Again, you're living in a new spiritual zip code, and that new spiritual zip code becomes a war zone. And for that reason, Paul expands his prayer to include another request, third We would learn from Paul's prayer to pray for strength, to face life joyfully. That's another way you can pray effectively for your church. Pray for strength. You might use the word power. I almost said power because that's what he asks for here. And we need strength to face life with joy, don't we? Because things don't always go according to plan. And life is filled with curveballs and... um, wild pitches from the enemy. And these things increase. The more you walk in a manner worthy of Christ, the more you grow in knowledge, the more you please the Lord with your life, the more intensity the opposition tends to become. I mean, they increase. Paul adds to his prayer that the Colossians would grow not only in spiritual knowledge and wisdom, And as they walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, he also prays, verse 11, that they may be what? Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Now, if you want to underline or circle some very key words, the word power, the word might, the word endurance, the word patience, and the word joy. I mean, I could preach a whole sermon just on that one sentence right there. You do a word study on every one of them because all of those things are very important. Can I just say this morning, if you want to make a million dollars, just invent a pill and put it on the market that increases people's strength and power, and you'll be a millionaire overnight because people are hungry for it. You need to invent the pill without side effects because there's all kind of stuff on the market today that are designed to do this kind of thing, and people get hooked on it, and their lives get ruined. They get addicted. And the reason that they do is they're, they're looking for strength. Because in their weakness, they can't handle it. Can't handle life. So they turn to drugs or painkillers or alcohol. All kinds of things. All that is is a, a reach 
to find power to face the difficulties of life, to face the uncertainties of life, to face the unexpected things of life. Can I just say as believers, we're going to face difficulties and opposition and uncertainty and the unexpected just as surely as anybody else, and this is why we need power in the body of Christ, and you need it. I'm just saying following Jesus is not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's the path of self-denial. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to learn to deny yourself, take up a cross, and follow me. And sometimes you may have to cut off your right hand, and other times you may have to gouge out your right eye. If it means doing that to live in a manner worthy of the holiness of God and worthy of the calling to which you've received, if it keeps you from sinning, sometimes you have to do extreme things that the world will call you crazy for doing, but that God will call you blessed for doing. And in order to do those kinds of things, it's no surprise why Paul prays that the church might have power. And just like with wisdom, God is quick to give to those who ask for power. Anybody here needs power? Preacher needs power. I prayed for it before I stepped into this place this morning. We all need power. Look at Isaiah 41 and verse 10. Great verse. Fear not, for I am what? With you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will what? Strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And that righteous right hand, of course, is the hand of power and might and authority. Power is available to those who ask for it. And I think it's interesting that Paul, of all of the illustrations of power in a believer's life, that he could have used, he isolates two things here in verse number 11 that the Colossians and all believers would surely need as they navigate the minefield of the world. And the reason I think that he mentions these two is because I think he needed them. Now remember, Paul's in jail when he's writing this. He's a long way away from Colossae, and he's in a dungeon jail cell. And don't you think that he needed power as he prayed for these people to have power? And two things that he isolates here by means of the power that's available to them are two things, endurance and patience. Did you see that? Endurance, of course, a word that Paul often uses, sometimes translated steadfastness or persistence. The idea is staying power, the ability to stay with it, stay with it, don't give up. Will you say the load is heavy? Yes, and that's what endurance is. It's bearing up under a heavy load without passing out or wilting or quitting in the process. Carrying a heavy load in tough times, in tough conditions, in tough circumstances. That's endurance. Patience, on the other hand, is the ability to stay calm in the face of provocation. Usually the provocation comes from other people. I mean, with endurance, you stay strong, you stay calm, you keep going in difficult conditions. With patience, you stay calm and you stay strong and you keep going and stay even-tempered when dealing with difficult 
people. Now, I know that y'all don't ever have to deal with difficult people in your life. No, I think everybody would say, you know what? We all need more of that. We all need more patience. We don't need any more difficult people, by the way. We got plenty of difficult people. What we need is a greater degree of endurance to face the difficult times of life. And we need more patience to look like Jesus with the difficult people of life. And again, it's interesting of all the things that Paul could have prayed for, he doesn't pray that the people at Colossae would be tranquil all the time. He doesn't pray for peace all the time, the absence of hostility, doesn't pray for protection, doesn't even pray for provision for that matter. He prays for spirit power that would bring the fruit of endurance in tough times and patience for tough people. And by doing so, he reminds us of what we face as a people every day in the year 2019 and why that's a good thing to pray for your church as well. Y'all still hanging with me? Say amen. Finally, pray for gratitude for all that God has done. That's a fourth lesson that we learn in terms of mature praying for our church. Pray for gratitude. In all of that, never lose a grateful heart. That's the final part of Paul's prayer. It begins with these words in verse 12, give, simply giving thanks to the Father. Giving thanks to the Father. Let's just stop there for a minute because the reason that he prays that is because he knows that walking in a manner worthy of Christ requires this deep appreciation for what God has done. Listen, the world's tough. The world is hot. People are difficult. Times are challenging. And the only way really to endure with, a, with a, a sense of joy in your heart and to not wilt under the pressure or become cynical in the process. And the Lord knows the last thing we need in this country and in this world is another cynical person. The only way to keep that at bay is to never lose sight of everything the Lord has done for you in Jesus. And to always be grateful. There's something incredibly uplifting that comes with a heart that's always thankful. Are you thankful for what God's done? You say, well, what has God done? Well, Paul mentions three things. We only have time just to basically mention them this morning. First, he says we ought to be thankful because God has qualified us for heaven. It's the fact that what God has done in Jesus Christ has qualified you by faith for an eternity in heaven, is that something that you think that we ought to be consistently thankful to God for? Paul says again in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. Why? Because the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And the key word there, of course, is qualified. The important thing to remember is You haven't qualified yourself for heaven, nor do you have even remotely what it takes to do that. This is a passive verb. The action is done upon us from outside of us. God has qualified for heaven, and He's done it through the cross and empty tomb of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ alone, plus nothing. Apart from what God has done in the person and work of Christ, 
we're exactly the opposite. We are disqualified for heaven. If you don't know Jesus, disqualified. But because of the work of Christ, God qualifies those who come to Christ with simple trust, faith. And He gives us the necessary righteousness. That's the qualification. What do I not have in my natural state that I have to have in order to become qualified for heaven? Righteousness. And that's what you get as a free gift. The minute you become born again by faith in Christ. You can't manufacture righteousness. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You cannot self-create it. It's a gift of God's grace. You can only receive it by trusting the work that Christ has done for you in the cross. So let's give thanks, Paul says. Second, God's not only qualified us for heaven, we ought to also give thanks because He's rescued us from hell. Is anybody thankful that they've been snatched out of the jaws of hell this morning? God has qualified us for heaven in Jesus. God has rescued us from hell in Jesus. Verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of of His beloved Son. It's been a, the cross is a supernatural rescue mission. And what Christ has rescued us from is certain death, eternal death. And by lifting us out of sin, He's taken us out of the dominion of darkness and transferred us, Paul says, to a new world, a new dominion, a new zip code called the kingdom. Out of the darkness of the world, into the kingdom of the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's transferred us from darkness to light, from the dominion of the world to the kingdom of heaven, from the authority of the devil to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that transfer happens the moment that you're saved. Supernaturally it does. Now it will come to complete culmination in reality when Jesus comes again, but it's as good as already fully done. And so be sure of this, if you know Jesus today, you've been rescued forever from hell at the same time you've been qualified forever for heaven. I don't know about you, I say it's time to give thanks to God. And then finally, we give thanks because God has redeemed us from bondage, qualified us from heaven, rescued us from hell. But then there's a present benefit. He's redeemed us from the bondage that sin has put us in and that enslaves us in our everyday lives today. Verse 14, we ought to be thankful because we have, Paul says, what? Redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Remember, Paul qualifies us for heaven by giving us the gift of the righteousness of Christ But then at the same time, God frees us from the bondage and guilt of sin by giving us the gift of forgiveness. And the end result, he says, is what we call redemption. It's the language of the slave market. It means to buy through the purchase of a price. And redemption means I'm free. I've been liberated. A price has been paid that in my condition of bondage, I could not pay. Somebody else came and paid the price for me to forever be set free. And of course, Jesus, as we know by the old song, paid it all. (laughs) Amen. 
All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. Christ washed it white as snow through his death and shed blood on the cross of Calvary. Why should I be thankful? Well, because Christ has qualified me for heaven. He's rescued me from hell. He's redeemed me from bondage today. So I'm just saying, no matter how difficult the journey, you never have to lose your joy. And you never will lose your joy as long as you keep gravitating back to this right here. If you want to live with a consistent song in your heart, smile on your face, skip in your step, the joy of the Lord which shall be your strength, you can never get beyond having a heart that is grateful for everything that God has done for you. And this, brothers and sisters, is how you pray for your church. This is a difference-making prayer right here. You pray for a complete knowledge of the gospel and God's will. You pray for wisdom and growth in life and in ministry that we might work, walk worthy of the calling of Christ. You pray for peace or for strength and for power to live joyfully and for gratitude always in everything that God has done. 